I don't know about you, but have you ever prayed, Lord, increase my faith? Especially when it comes to a promise. I had a woman, she was so sweet, and she came up to me the other day, and she goes, I have the gift of prophecy, and I have a word for you. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm just like, okay. You know, you expect it like, God wants to punch you out. You know, I don't know why, but we just have these expectations sometimes, and I'm just like, okay. And it was a beautiful word, and it really bore witness with this situation in my life that nobody else knew about. And yet, I'm reticent. Like, that was such a good word. I don't think I deserve that word. And yet the Lord wants to give us his word, his promises. And we need that increase of faith. But have you ever prayed that? Lord, increase my faith. When you read about where Jesus said, if you just have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be thou removed and thrown into the sea. Don't you wish you had that kind of faith? You know, I mean, do you have mountains in your life that you'd like to say, out of here. There's the Pacific, go jump in the ocean. You know, I want that kind of faith or the faith to persevere when the going gets rough, to be able to keep going. Faith that doesn't fear the fiery furnace. Faith that goes into the lion's den and says, it's all right, I'll see you in the morning. I want that kind of faith. Faith that has eyes that are open, that doesn't see the army of the Syrians, but sees the chariots of fire that are on the mountains. Faith that doesn't measure my strength against the giants, but the giants against the strength of the Almighty God. Faith that rests in God and doesn't get shaken. But let me say this, faith is not about my ability to believe better or my ability to believe more. It's never, ever, 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 ever about me. It's not my ability to believe. It is my believing in him, in God, and what he has already done. Abraham believed God. He believed God was all that God said he was. When God said to Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Abraham's like, good to meet you. I'm so glad that I've got a shield and an exceeding great reward. Abraham believed that God would do all that he said he would do for Abraham. He said, I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. I will make you the father of many nations. Abraham said, great, let's do this. In Romans 4, 17, uh, Paul tells us that God spoke to Abraham and said, I have made you the father of many nations. I have made you. At this time, Abraham didn't have any children and he was in his 70s. And God says, I have made you. It's already a done deal, Abraham. It, in my world, which is the alpha to the omega, the beginning and the end, I'm seeing it and it's already done. And it says, I've made you the father of many nations. God said this in the presence of him whom he believed, even God. And this is what Abraham believed about God, that he gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. God calls those things. Abraham believed the gospel that God showed him. In Abraham, we have a portrait of what God would do through Jesus Christ. After Abraham had his son Isaac, God said, take your son, your only son, Now we know he had another son by Hagar, Ishmael, but God only recognized 
Isaac. And he said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, to the place that I will show you and offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham went three days traveling. And interestingly enough, it was Isaac who bore the wood for the sacrifice. And they went up onto a mountain. And Isaac said, Father, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide himself as the sacrifice. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. In John 8, 56, Jesus speaking to the Jews said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. In that day, when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, in that day, Abraham was portraying a picture of what God himself would do. That God would take his son, his only son, Jesus, and he would offer him up for the sins of the world. As we know, Abraham did not have to sacrifice Isaac. The angel of the Lord stopped him. There was a ram caught in a thicket, and that became the sacrifice that Abraham offered. But Abraham received this, this picture of what God would do, and he rejoiced in the gospel. He rejoiced in what God would do when God gave himself as the sacrifice. The gospel, the story of Jesus, proclaims who God is and what he has done. God's power and person are seen in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we're told, For it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God says, you look at Jesus and you'll know all about me. Jesus said to Philip in John chapter 14, Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Again, Jesus said in in the gospel of John, he said, no man knows the father but the son and the one to whom the son reveals him. Jesus is the revelation of God. When you look at Jesus, you see God's compassion. You see God's will. Jesus said, I always do those things that please my father. I am acting out all that God is. We're told in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the express image of the person of God. So that, again, he who has seen Jesus, when you look at Jesus, you are seeing all the attributes, all the virtue, the very personality of God the Father. The gospel states what God has done for man. In Romans 4.25, we're told that Jesus was delivered up for our offenses and raised for our justification. The gospel shows us that we as sinners were condemned to death. But God sent his only begotten son to pay the penalty for our sins, for all the wrongs we had done, for both the omissions, the good things we should have done, but we didn't, and all the commissions the things we shouldn't have done, but we did. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. He took the wrath of God against sin so that we could receive the love of God 
for our faith. Isn't that just so amazing? Jesus rose from the dead three days later to prove that his sacrifice for sin, the blood sacrifice that he took to God the Father, I've just been reading Hebrews in my personal devotions and just reading in Hebrews chapter six, how Jesus went into the ultimate holy of holies to the very throne of God with his own blood as the sacrifice for sins. And it was accepted. He, our great high priest, took it into the very throne room of God where it was accepted. And then he rose again from the dead that we would know that our sacrifice, that his sacrifice for our sins was accepted in the time of the sacrifices of Israel, the temple times, the high priest, even the tabernacle times, he would go into the Holy of Holies. So you've got the tabernacle or the temple and you've got the courtyard of the Gentiles and then it kind of filters down. Then you've got the court of men where only Jews could be, no women. Women were only allowed in the court of the Gentiles. That tells you something. And then there's the court of men. Then you go into the holy place, which only the priests were allowed. And then there's this huge curtain. And only the high priest could go in past the curtain and only once a year. And he had to, before he went in, offer up a sacrifice for himself. And then when he was assured that his sins were covered, then he could offer a sacrifice for the nation. And he would walk in. But if there was sin in his own life that was not atoned for, or if the sacrifice was not accepted by God, then he would die in the Holy of Holies and not come out. And oh my goodness, when he would go in without blood, everybody held their breath. When he went into behind the curtain, holding their breath, is it going to be acceptable with God? Will our sins be covered? And when he came out from the curtain as if rising again, Everyone knew we're forgiven for one year. <laughs> it's covered. But Jesus, we're told, went into the ultimate holy of holies, not with the blood of goats and rams, which could only cover sin, but with his own precious blood, that powerful blood. He went into the great holy of holies before the throne of God, presented his blood and it was accepted, and he came out from the presence of God. The sacrifice accepted, and he was raised again that we might know that we are justified, that we are forgiven. When you feel like, oh no, this is too much, I can't be forgiven, look at Jesus, he's alive. That's why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important, because it is the proof, it is the proof that we are forgiven the gospel also gives us the promises, the promises of God to those who believe in him. You know, all the promises of the Old Testament, have you ever noticed that they're conditional? If you do this, if you do this, all the qualifications that you have to meet before you can get a promise. Do you, do you, ever, do you ever give up on entering something because it gets too complicated? You know, pretty soon they want your social security number, they want to know the first dog you owned and what its name was. You know, all those security questions. I don't know what I do with security questions. I must be putting in different answers every time because they're like, you're not who you say you are. And I'm like, oh, yes, I am. I don't know what I did wrong. I forgot my teacher in first grade. I probably gave you my kindergarten teacher, but I had two because I lived in Corona and then we moved. So I don't know. Do you want Mrs. Saito? Because I can't remember how to spell her name. Or do you want Mrs. Evans, who was not very nice? 
still remember. I was so traumatized in kindergarten. But you know, we, we, we sometimes stop because it just gets too complicated. That's how the Old Testament was. There's all these great promises, but it was too complicated to get them. We had to do good constantly. We had to be perfect. We had to do everything the law says in heart and mind and action. And we could never, ever do it. So the promises were closed. They were closed to everybody. You could see them, but you couldn't touch them. You couldn't hold them. You couldn't claim them. But because of Jesus, because Jesus was absolutely righteous, he qualified for every promise. And then according to Hebrews chapter nine, he made out a will and said, at my death, all the promises of God that belong to me, I will these to anyone who believes on my name. And he died on the cross and all those promises become ours. And again, his resurrection proves that all the promises of God are now available to us. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul proclaimed all the promises of God are in Christ and they are amen or so be it or it is done. All the promises, all those promises in the Old Testament, all those great promises in the New Testament, they become ours. We can stand in them, we can live in them, we can claim them because of what Jesus has done. There's no other way to claim the promises except through faith in Christ. That's the only way. But they are all ours. God wants us to have faith. He wants us to believe in who he is, what he's done, and what he's promised to do. There is nothing that blesses God more than anything else than our faith. You know, I know we we do all these things and we're always trying to please God, but what he wants from us more than anything else is faith, that we just believe him, that we just believe that he is all that he says he is, that he has done all he said he's done, that our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ, and that he will do everything that he's promised to do personally, those little promises, that he'll get you through that trial, that he will bring you through that he will put his hand to prosper you in life, spiritually, that he will protect you, but also the glorious promises that he is coming again, and he will receive us unto himself, that where he is, we might also be, that we will live in his presence forever and ever and ever. And as we believe these promises, it blesses God. What, what can you do to bless God? John chapter six, they came to Jesus and said, what do we need to do to to do the works of God, to please God? And he said, this is the work of God. Believe in him, believe in me, whom God has sent. That's what God wants us to do. G.D. Watson said this, our limitless trust in God seems to satisfy him as nothing else can do. Because it corresponds with his eternal faithfulness, it honors his veracity, and it is a constant silent worship of all his perfections. Our faith, just simply believing that he's, that he's God, that he's good, that he's loving, 
that he wants to bless, that he's, that he is who he is, that he's done what he says he's done. You were like, what, what else? What else? Nope. That's it. Once you believe in me, I have an open door into your heart to do all I want to do. It's, it's the mustard seed. It's where the door just opens just enough that God can do what he wants to do. Why faith though? Romans 4.16 tells us why God chose to do it by faith. It says that he did it, that it might be according to grace, not man's works, but it might be according to grace. You see, faith highlights God's grace because it's all about what God has done for us and not what we do for God. That's grace. So all of a sudden, this concept of grace becomes so real, so so great, so magnified. Oh my goodness. You know, some days we feel like we don't need grace. We feel like we've got it all together. The older I get, the more I'm like so not there. But I remember being in my 20s going, oh, Grace, isn't that nice? Have it for others. I'm doing so well. And then you just fall on your face. I used to have this Grace Club. You were either in or out of my Grace Club. You know, like, we're the ones that got really favors. And then one day, I got kicked out of my own Grace Club. It was a bad day. I I was just not a nice person. And it was then that I needed grace and I fell on my knees. And you know what? It was there. It was there. Oh, God's grace is so big. It qualifies us when we've disqualified ourselves. It qualifies us when others disqualify us. And it qualifies us by faith. Faith showcases God's grace. It brings it out to the forefront. Again, though, it's according to faith that it might be guaranteed sure to all. Guaranteed. Because it's based on what God did. If it was based on what I did or what you did, we couldn't be sure. Did you do enough? Did you do it right? (laughs) Did you absolutely do it right? I have this one bread I make in my bread maker. It has um, cocoa in it, and it has um, coffee, instant coffee in it, steakhouse bread. I know you're saying, Cheryl, give us that recipe, and we will be satisfied. <laughs> it's a bread maker recipe, but let me tell you about this recipe. Sometimes I, I'm always following it exactly the same, and sometimes it turns out, and sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't turn out, I look at it and go, what did I do wrong? I followed the recipe exactly. I did the two-thirds of cup water. I did the agave. I did the tablespoon of cocoa. I did the teaspoon of the instant coffee. Where did I go wrong? You know, I just think sometimes this recipe wants to cooperate with me, and sometimes it just doesn't like me. But I can never be sure. When I put all those ingredients in that little tub, put it in my bread maker, I can never be sure. Is it going to turn out? Or is it not going to turn out? Yesterday, I had a good day. It turned out. But I'm never quite sure about my chocolate bread. Other breads, if this whole wheat bread turns out perfect every time. But that chocolate bread, which of course is my favorite bread, right? I'm never quite sure. And you know, that's how it would be if it was based on our works. If it was based on something we did, then we'd never be quite sure. But it's by faith, because everyone can believe. Jew, Gentile, woman, man, 
wealthy, poor, educated, uneducated, everyone can believe. And so that means it's guaranteed because it's by faith. It's absolutely sure to all the seed. It's by faith that it might be generous. Generous. It's for anyone, unlimited opportunity to those who are of the law and to those who were born without the law. For those who are the biological heirs of Abraham and those who are the non-biological heirs of Abraham. It's by faith so God can be generous. Faith relies on what God has done and not what men or man has done. God has done all the work to save us. And those who are saved and come into the promises of God do so by simply believing in the work and the word already accomplished by God through Jesus Christ. That's our entrance. That's our entrance. We're in because of what Jesus has done. And we enter in the same promise, Romans 4, 24, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Here it is. Paul shows us in Romans chapter four that God's plan has always been based on faith. This is always the way that God has saved men. It's never been by the works of the law. The law was just a tutor to get us to faith in God. It was just to hold us while we were young. Um, I call, and if you're in this age group, forgive me, but I call the ages of 15 to 20 the stupid years. Because I, I, you know, you need the law between the ages of 15 and 20. You need the law of don't speed. I remember speeding. I got a ticket on Brookhurst for going 85 miles an hour at 17 years old. You know what was really embarrassing about it? I didn't tell my dad or mom because I went to traffic school and the man doing traffic school went to Calvary (laughs) and he knew who I was. And when he called roll, he looked right at me and he said, does your father know about this? (laughs) I always got caught. Always got caught because God loves me. But those stupid years where what's wrong with going 85 miles an hour down Brookhurst? It's fun. No, it's stupid. You know, I remember another time I was at Knott's Berry Farm. I It was at one of those Christian nights. I rode the train and the robber, you know how they have robbers on the train? He stole this teddy bear that I won at the skeet ball and he told me he wouldn't give it back unless I went on a date with him. My friend said, don't do it. Don't do it. But those were the stupid years. So I said, yes. And I arranged it on a day when my parents weren't home and he came to pick me up and he had tractor tires on the back of his Firebird, and I know it was a firebird because it had a huge firebird painted on the hood and dice hanging from the window. And when I got in the car, I leaned forward without trying because of the tractor wheels in the back and the smaller wheels in the front. And not only that, when I had seen him at Knott's Berry Farm, he looked like a cowboy. When he picked me up, he looked like the disco king. He had a tight polyester shirt that was unbuttoned to the navel. 
and chains around his neck. He had a belt buckle that was bigger than his waist and it said Budweiser. He had polyester pants on that were like bell bottom and he had these like shoes that tied that had huge heels, like four inch heels. And I looked at the door. I I remember answering the door going, oh God, forgive me. I repent. Just get me out of this any way possible. So we went to a movie. And so the movie wasn't very good. And so I just said, I, I, I can't do this. I'm a Christian. I need to go home. I've got a headache. And well, before that, we're sitting in the theater. And I turned around. And my brother is on the front row with two girls. And he turns around and looks at me like, what is going on with you? And so the guy that I'm with, I think his name was Dwayne. He said, do you want anything? And I said, yes, anything they have at the concession booth, just go. And he went to get it. And my brother comes and he goes, what, what is with that guy? And I said, it's a mistake. It's my sin. I've been found out. Um, he looked really cute in a cowboy hat when he had my teddy bear. Um, he doesn't go to Calvary. He's not a Christian. I'm, I'm wrong. I'm in sin. I'm just, and I'm repenting right now. My brother said, don't worry, I'll get you out of this. Don't worry. So my brother doesn't look a thing like me. He's got blue eyes. He's got, he had golden blonde hair then. I had dark brown hair, brown eyes. And so the guy comes back in and my brother looks at him and he says, he looks at me and he says, so babe, when are we going to get back together? I did not see that one coming. (laughs) And and then the guy I'm with is like, you know, but that's okay because he only weighs like 110 pounds. And, you know, it's like. (sighs) And so um, I didn't know what to do. I I can't do that kind of stuff. I'm in truth zone now. I'm repenting. So I'm like, Dwayne, this is my brother. You know, this is Dwayne. And without missing a beat, my brother's like, good to meet you. He just you know, pulling your leg. And he goes back and I'm just like, and he turns to me, goes, are you okay? And I'm like, no, I've got a really bad headache. I think I'm going to throw up. Can you take me home? And so as he's taking me home, he goes, do you ever want to go out again? I'm like, no, no, never. Uh -uh, uh-uh. I'm going to wait for the one God has for me from now on. Stupid ears. But you know what? That's the law is to get you through the stupid ears. And we need the law to get us to the stupid ears. So we can get to the year that we just want Jesus and grace is holding us and we have faith that we know God is real and we don't want to lean on our own understanding. We don't want to, we don't want to lean into our own tastes and doing what we want to do, but we're saying, God, we know you are everything you said you are, that you have done everything that you've said you've done and your promises are better than the things that we try to get for ourselves. We need to move past those stupid years. And that's what the law is for. It's for the stupid years. I like saying stupid. <laughs> I said it at, um, at my son's house. My little four-year-old grandson said, Grandma, we don't use that word in this family. Okay. And of course, I kept doing it much to their delight because they could go tell their parents on the grandma. You know, <laughs> But it's always been about faith. Abraham believed God. This first covenant that God made, it was based on faith. Abraham believed God 
and it was accounted him for righteousness, Genesis 15, 6, and then again, it's Romans 4, verse 3. Abraham did not work for it. Then Abraham would have owed God because he worked for it, and it would be wages, and it wouldn't be grace. But it was grace. Grace is unmerited favor. By its own definition, by everything that it is. Grace is not grace if it's merited. Then it's owed and we call it debt. But grace, by the very nature of its name and its connotation, is unmerited favor. We see also that faith has been the way it's been even while people were under the law. Because as David was under the law, we find out that he sinned, and he sinned badly. He had an affair with a woman who was another man's wife. And then in order to cover his sin, he had that woman's husband put to death. When Nathan the prophet came to him in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and pointed out David's sin that David thought no one knew about, pointed it out to him, David said, I have sinned. And Nathan said in verse 13, it's forgiven. God has forgiven you. How did he forgive David? He was looking forward to Jesus would carry that sin. Then David sat down and wrote in Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2, Oh, how happy is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Oh, how happy is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute or put that sin on his account. He says, uh-uh, I'm taking this sin off your account. And it was by faith. It was by faith that David was forgiven. It was by faith David received the kingship of Israel because he believed that God was the person he said he was. God is my shepherd. He believed that God would do all that he said he would do. He believed the promises of God. It's always been about faith. God's covenant of faith to Abraham was made before Abraham was even circumcised. While Abraham was still a Chaldean living in Iraq, God called him, Genesis chapter 12. And he said to Abraham, I want you to get out of this land and away from your people to a land I will show you. And then God began to make promises to Abraham. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. A covenant where he said, Abraham, get the animals, cut them in half, put them on each side. And then he didn't let Abraham pass through those animals. And again, uh, Braden brought it up. I believe I told you before. They would cut the animals in half to say, this is what should be done to the person who doesn't keep the covenant. I, it's like, I swear, you know, stick a needle in my eye if I don't do what I said I'm going to do. So they would cut these animals in half. If you don't do this, then you're going to be cut asunder. But God put Abraham to sleep and wouldn't let Abraham pass through. And when Abraham awoke, he saw God himself had come down and was passing through. In other words, God was saying, if I don't do what I said I'm going to do, then let me be cut asunder. God swore with an oath to Abraham. 
And we're told in Hebrews, by two immutable things, his word and his oath, that those who come to Christ in faith might have the greatest assurance. We've got God's oath and we've got God's word. Faith is what God wants from us, just as he wanted from Abraham. But at this point, when God made this covenant with Abraham, he was not yet circumcised. He doesn't get circumcised till the end of chapter 17. But already he's in a covenant with God. Already he's got the promises of God. Circumcision came after the covenant was made. In other words, circumcision was a seal of a covenant already made with Abraham. Circumcision was not the covenant. It was the reminder of the covenant that was made with God. Therefore, Abraham is the father of all those of faith. God's promise to Abraham was that all the nations of the earth would be saved through Abraham's seed. Here's the promise. Here's what Abraham believed. Genesis 12, 3. Genesis 17, 1 through 6, Genesis 22, 18, that all the nations of the earth would be saved. Not some nations, not a few nations, not just Israel, but all the nations of the earth would be saved through the seed. The one who would come through Abraham would save all the nations of the earth. That seed is Jesus. And what Abraham believed was that through him, a descendant, the Messiah would come. And through that Messiah, God would save anyone and everyone from whatever nation who would, like Abraham, believe the promises of God. God's covenant was not by the works of the law. We're going to learn as we get to chapter six, but don't worry, it's emancipation chapter. It's going to be so good. It's all good from now on. It's all good. It's all a lot easier in your homework, but it's all good. From now on, you're going to realize that the covenant was not by the works of the law in Romans 6, 14 through 15, because the law cannot make men righteous. All the law can do is tell you how you're messing up. All it can do is identify everything you've done wrong. Thereby, it compounds our sin. If you, know, if you walk on the grass, but you don't see the sign, don't walk on the grass, you're not really guilty because you didn't see it. You're still guilty because you're walking on the grass, but you can say guilty with an excuse. But when you see that sign and you walk on the grass, you are guilty without an excuse. Israel had the law. They were guilty without an excuse. The Gentiles did not have the law, but they were still guilty by commission. Years ago, when I lived in Vista, I got a ticket. Yes, another one. This time it was for having my almost four-year-old sitting in the front seat with a seatbelt on. And I had my girlfriend in the back seat with her three-year-old with a seatbelt on. And we were going to a church park day to have fun. And I got pulled over. And I was given a ticket. And my friend was given a ticket. And I said, you know, the law had just changed um, that January And I was unaware of it. This is March. And I remember the officer said, that's no excuse just because you didn't know the law. The law is still the law, whether you know it or not. He said, but you know, go to court and just see if you can get off. And I remember when we went to court, court was scary. There were such scary people in that court. We were the only two people in that courtroom with dresses on. 
And our dresses had bows. And we also had headbands on. And we were the only people with, you know, headbands, dresses, bows. And there we were, and we were both holding a car seat to prove that we were, from now on, going to put our children in a car seat till they were 21. We were gonna do it. <laughs> and the courtroom looked so scary that we accidentally sat in the Spanish-speaking-only section. But we weren't gonna move because it was the safest-looking section in that courtroom. So then they pull out this video of George, um, I'm sorry, of Judge Ornelius. And we have to watch this video. And he's saying to all of us, I have the ability to send anyone in this courtroom to jail. And don't think I won't use it. And if you're, and I only want to hear one of three answers, guilty, guilty with an excuse or not guilty. And if you tell me you're not guilty and I find that you are, I will give you a mandatory sentence. Now, I was sitting there with a thing from my doctor saying that Braden was 40 pounds. I had my car seat. I had all you know, this evidence. And I was going to say not guilty because I didn't know the law. But as I listened to what the law was and what Judge Ornelius' standards were, you know what I realized? Even with my dress and bow and hairband, car seat, I was in birth certificate of Braden and the doctor's certificate saying how much he weighed, I was guilty of sin. I was so guilty. Yes, I put him in the front seat because he kept climbing out of his car seat. And I wanted to be able to watch him, but that's no excuse. And I remember I got up. It was my turn. The person right in front of me was like, Judge, I couldn't do it because I just got out of jail. And he's like, okay, three days. Thank you, Judge. Now it's my turn. There I am with my dress. I'm ready to speak. And he said, yes. And I looked at him all ready to say, guilty with an excuse. But my voice gave out and Minnie Mouse took possession of me. (laughs) And I said, guilty with an excuse. And it took everything in me just to get that squeak out. And I remember Judge Ornelius looking at me going, and then looking at the bailiff and the bailiff like, I've never seen this before. I literally could not talk. And and he's like, you should have known the law. I mean, I could not say anything. I was absolutely dumbfounded. He's the judge. He could send me to jail. He's got the power in that room. And he said, all right, I'll reduce. I'm going to reduce it to $100 because you've got your car seat with you. (laughs) And I went running out as fast as I could from that courtroom. And why I was paying my fine, the lady goes, what'd you do? Because, you know, she doesn't see many ladies with bows on. And I said, you know, this. And she goes, oh, my goodness. I let my three-year-old go without a car seat. I'm like, don't do it. Because you'll be in there with a car seat. Next thing I knew, my girlfriend came running out of the uh, courtroom. Because we were both there. And I'm like, what happened? She goes, I just told them I was in the backseat of Cheryl Broderson's car. $100. And he let me out. And there we are. It's paid. But you know, that's how it is. Guilty with an excuse, you're still guilty. You still have to pay a fine. We're guilty. The Gentiles were guilty. Maybe with the excuse we didn't know the law. The Jews were guilty. They knew the law. But you know what? At the end of the day, we're all guilty, right? We're all guilty. The law identifies unrighteousness, thereby compounding our sin. But Abraham is the father of all who are in the faith. 
In the same way that Abraham was made righteous by believing God, we are made righteous in believing God, who he is, what he's done through Jesus Christ. Now, how did Abraham build on this faith? Because we all want stronger faith, right? We all want to build our faith up. Jude says in verse 20, build yourself up in the most holy faith. So how do we build our faith? Well, I think it's interesting because we're told in verse 12, that he is our father. He's the father of those who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So what are these steps of faith? Now, think about a staircase. Every rung or every step that you take takes you closer to your objective. For those of you who leave your glasses upstairs and are taking those steps to get to them and get to the third step and can't remember why you're going upstairs which would be my problem. But every step takes you a little closer to where you want to go, doesn't it? So you get on the first step, and then you take another step. And that's what Abraham did. He wasn't, he, he wasn't unwavering in the beginning when he started this journey with God. That faith went into him like a mustard seed. God said, as we've said before in Genesis chapter 12, get up, get away from your family. Abraham moved out of Iraq, but he moved to a place called Haran. He did not move to the place God was showing him. And then God came to him again in Haran. And his father died. And it was important for Abraham to move into the promises that God had him for him by faith. But it wasn't perfected faith. It wasn't like from the beginning that he heard God speak. He said, oh, that's it. I believe everything. No, he tested the word of God. We're told that, you know, God says to him, you're going to be the father of many nations. And what does Abraham do? He's got a wife. And when he gets to Egypt, he gives her away to the Pharaoh. And he says to her, you tell the Pharaoh, you're my sister, not my, not my wife. Otherwise, he'll kill me. Now, God has said, you're going to have a lot of children. He has no children. And he's like, lie for me or I'm going to die. Does that sound like faith? No, he wasn't perfected in faith. He had just taken step one, but he needed more steps. Then in Egypt, they're given this Egyptian woman, this slave, Hagar. Then Sarah has an idea. Look, I'm barren. It's never going to happen. I'm almost 80. Take Hagar, have a child by her, and we'll just adopt this child. And, and he'll be the son of promise. Abraham listens to his wife. And he has Ishmael by Hagar. God comes to him and said, Ishmael's not the one. Sarah, your wife is going to have a child. That's how the promises of God are going to happen. Abraham, what does he do now? He gives her away again. Gives Sarah away again. She's almost 80. She must have been some looker. Because at 80, the Philistine king is interested in her. And, and either that or Abraham doesn't see so well. He's like, you're still looking good to me. He might want you. But she's taken into the Philistine court, the harem. And then, of course, as we know, that Abimelech, his, his wives couldn't conceive. His animals couldn't conceive. God comes to him in a dream and says, you're a dead man. And he's like, why? And he said, because you took a prophet's wife. And then he rebukes Abraham. He says, take your wife and you quit lying. This is the father of faith. I love that. 
He's not perfect. It wasn't even perfected faith because see, it wasn't built on how much Abraham believed or how good he believed. It was all about what God was going to do. So here are the steps. First of all, contrary in hope, in hope he believed. So this is what Abraham learned through the things he went through. He learned that it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter what the impossibilities are. Verse 18, contrary to hope, he believed in hope. Contrary to the circumstances, he put the promise and the word of God above what he saw. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul says, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We put our eyes on eternal things. That God who is in the heaven is on the throne and he can do anything he wants. And it doesn't matter how many impossibilities we see. Contrary to hope, he believed. We choose to believe God's word above the impossibilities. Let me say this. Faith doesn't mean we get it right. It means God got it right. And we trust in his rightness always. Not that we get it right, but that God got it right and will always get it right. Abraham, step two, did not consider his own body. As we've said before, David, when he came up against Goliath, did not say, well, let's see, I'm about five foot six. He's about, you know, nine feet tall. He's got a javelin. I've got a slingshot. He's got armor. I've got my little cute outfit. He didn't measure the giant against him. When he came up against Goliath, Goliath is measuring himself against David and said, I've got this one done. You're just, you're just a runt. You don't know what you're doing. I'm going to take you and feed you to the birds of the air. David goes, you think so? Well, I'm measuring you against God. And you look really puny against God. And you said, you're a warrior from your youth. Well, my God is a mighty warrior. And he's sovereign. That's what faith does. Abraham did not consider his own body. He didn't, he didn't say, well, let's say I've got this education or I've got this talent, or I've got this energy. That's not part of the equation. Do you ever feel like God is calling you way above your pay grade? God, I'm not trained for this. I don't have the education for this. As, as Moses, Lord, I, I can't speak. I'm not eloquent enough to lead these people. And God said, I made the mouth. I'll do it all. Abraham realized that the promise of God is dependent on God, not on Abraham. It's not what we bring. It's all about what God is bringing into the situation. So he says, you know what? It has nothing to do with me, how old I am, how energetic I am. Nothing to do with me. Next, Abraham did not place his dependency on Sarah. He didn't consider the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't place his expected, that thing, on Sarah expectancy. He didn't place it on Sarah. Like, well, at least Sarah's young. At least Sarah has the ability to do this. Mm -mm -mm -mm. You see, often what we do 
is we measure ourselves against the problem or the trial and say, oh, well, I do have this savings account, or I am good at talking my you know, way out of things, or I've got personality, or I've got this. Mm-mm-mm-mm. It was like all the props were gone, and Abraham was left alone with the promise of God. Every way that Abraham could have fulfilled it has been slowly taken away. So the promise relies on God alone. And then we put off in the expectancy, well, I can't do it, but I've got friends that love me. I've got friends that will help me. I have a friend who was very, very wealthy, and she began to lose her business. But she had invested in jewelry. She said to me, Cheryl, jewelry is not a good investment. She paid $150,000 for a certain ring and thought that would carry her through. When she took it to get money on it, she could only get $20,000 for it, a decrease of $130,000. All her um, wealthy friends that she thought, they'll, they'll help me out of this, she said, not one wealthy friend said, I'll help you. I've got the money. I can loan you. I can see your business through. She said, they all failed me. But she said, Jesus never failed me. She said, but during that time of reduction, she said, I learned to trust in the Lord alone. I learned it wasn't about me or my talents or what I brought, but Jesus alone. Next, we read step four, he strengthened his faith. He strengthened his faith. How can we strengthen our faith? We can, you know. Abraham strengthened his faith. We're told that he rehearsed the promises of God. He told himself the promises of God. These are the faith builders we have. We have God's word. We have God's promises. We can strengthen our faith by reading and rereading the promises of God as we go through God's word. Prayer. As we pray, our faith is strengthened. Fellowship strengthens us in the promises of God. Don't you love, you know, what is fellowship? Fellowship is this, when you get together and you talk about Jesus and you talk about what the Lord has shown you, that's fellowship. Fellowship is not sidecar donuts and coffee alone. There has to be good talk about Jesus. And then you can almost qualify anything, hot fudge Sundays, everything is fellowship. (laughs) But it's gotta be that talk about the goodness of the Lord and what the Lord has shown you and what the Lord's brought you through. So, It's fellowship. It's Bible studies. As we come and we hear about all that God has done in his word, another way to build yourself up in faith is Christian biographies. Oh, I would recommend Roger Steer's book on the life of George Mueller. If you want a faith builder, I got to the end of the book, I cried. I can't wait to meet George Mueller in heaven. But it built my faith. George Mueller decided, actually, I think you pronounce his name Mueller. George Mueller, but I'm not German. George Mueller, he decided that he was going to take God at his word and not tell anybody what any of his problems were or where he needed money. He would just trust in God. And God met it every single time. Oh, Christian biographies. Uh, I've told you before, the small woman, the story of Gladys Elward. I love this woman. I mean, just the things that God did in her life. And, And when you read about her, I mean, she was told she was too stupid. Can you believe that? Too stupid, too sickly, and too old to go on the mission field. 
And so she just didn't go with that mission organization. She went on her own because she knew that the Lord had told her. And her whole life plays out as one miracle after another. Oh, it'll build your faith. Finally, we're told, step five, he gave glory to God. That's how he did it. He strengthened his faith by giving glory to God. Praise and thanksgiving will build your faith. Philippians 4, 6 tells us that all our requests are to be known to God with thanksgiving. Because thanksgiving reminds us of all God has already done and all the things that are already ours right now through Jesus Christ. And thanksgiving opens our eyes up. You know, when you have to be thankful or you start thinking about the things you're thankful for, you're all of a sudden thanking God for things that you just take for granted. I mean, isn't it incredible that we all have indoor plumbing? Do we ever really think about that? Indoor plumbing? I was visiting, I was in Williams, Arizona last week. I was at my Aunt Isi's camp, which is now derelict. And I was looking at the outhouse that used to be at the main cabin. And I'm thinking the first couple of years I was there as a child, we had to use the outhouse until she added running water and the bathroom to the cabin. And I was sitting there looking at that going, oh my goodness, I'm so thankful. So thankful for bathrooms. So thankful for porcelain. Do we ever think about that hot water? I mean, now in California, aren't we so thankful for water? Every time it rains, we're like, oh, thank you. So thankful for water. We could turn it on and it comes out the tap. So thankful for Tuesdays and Saturdays when I get to water my lawn. So thankful for water, but we take these things for granted, don't we? Until they're threatened. But Thanksgiving opens our eyes to all that we have. And it, it strengthens, it builds up our faith. So what do these steps look like for us? Very quickly as a review. As we believe God is who he says he is, has done what he says he's done, and will do what he says he will do, we strengthen that. We strengthen that by considering God's word greater than our circumstances. By not putting anything that we have into the equation of what God's going to do. Not our strength, not our obedience, not our ability to believe even, but just it rests on God. Like, God, you've got to do this because I can't, but you can. And you can even do it through me if you want. That we put our expectancy on God and not on others around us. Like, get me through this, friends. Nope. Get me through this, Jesus. That then we build up this faith through the word and by putting our name on the promises. Do you have a promise? If you're going through a circumstance that's hard, get yourself a promise. Read the Bible till you get that promise. Then you circle it. You write it out. You put it on your mirror and your refrigerator, the two places you look at most. And, and you keep looking at that promise. In fact, it's really good to put it on your mirror because then you're looking at the promise and said, this is dependent on you and not the person I'm seeing. It's dependent on God. Get yourself a promise. Ask the Lord for one. Ask God for confirmation of that promise. Stand on it. Pray over it. Put your hand on it. Put a date on it in your Bible. I've got promises with dates. And I've told you this, coded, secret codes by the promises. 
Even I forget the secret code of what it's about. But God doesn't. Remember God's promises based on his power, not on fortuitous circumstances, not on your abilities or power to make it happen, not on friends or those you know. Strengthen yourself in the faith, Bible studies, fellowship. I love apologetics. The Veritas Conference for those who aren't going to the retreat is this weekend. Christian biographies, praise and thanksgiving, worship music, awesome way to strengthen yourself in the faith. Um, There was a lady at the retreat I just did last week. Her name was Elise Hiddle. The, The subject matter of the retreat was victory. So we're singing this great song, There's Victory in Jesus. And and this song is so doctrinal. I'm like, that is such a great song. Where is it? She goes, oh, I wrote it. I'm like, you wrote it? All this week, I've been singing about the victory that I have in Jesus. And it's been strengthening my faith because there's victory in Jesus. As we sing to ourselves in Colossians 3.16, it tells us that we're supposed to sing to ourselves and make melody in our heart to the Lord. That will strengthen our faith. Our faith in God, remember, blesses God like nothing else can do. It pleases God. It allows him to accomplish great, greater and the greatest things in our lives. It opens up the door for him to work and do all that he wants to do. Abraham became an example to us because of his faith. He was accounted righteous. He became the father of many nations. He had a relationship with God and he received the promises that God gave him. So God wants to use each one of us as examples of faith. He wants to use us to our children as examples of faith. Well, my mother believed God and he did it. I have heard more testimonies. Oh, you should have met my mom. She just believed the promises of God and God would do everything for my mother. I I actually have that kind of mother now that I think of it. And my father, examples of faith. But I want to be a story of faith to my children. I want them to say, my mother believed God. And I saw God work for my mother because she just believed him. God wants to use you as an example of faith for your neighbors, for your friends, for those around you, even non-Christians saying, well, I know that God answers. I don't know why your neighbors are from the South, but they are. God answers your prayers, and I want my prayers answered like your prayers are answered. He wants to use you as that example of that story of faith, that people can follow your story of faith and account you as righteous to work in your life. He wants to maintain that relationship with you by faith and give you exceedingly great and precious promises that are based on what he's going to do for you as you simply believe. Each step of faith brings us that much closer to God, establishes us, cements us, stops the wavering and the shaking, and makes us fully persuaded, absolutely confident, that what our God has promised, he will do. Will you stand up and we'll pray. Lord, I present to you our wavering faith. Lord, like the five loaves and two fish, which seemed way too small to feed a multitude, so our faith, Lord, seems so small compared to the circumstances in our lives. 
compared to all the impossibilities, all the hunger, all the deficits. But Lord, we give you this faith and we ask that you would bless it as you blessed the loaves and fish, that you would multiply it as you multiplied the loaves and fish, and that you would use our faith to feed the multitude as you did with the loaves and fish. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who has no impossibilities. With man, it's impossible, but with you, all things are possible. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Now, Lord, build our faith. Amen.